and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and we're joined once again by Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States to talk more about the book of Revelation. I've been looking forward to this for ages. This time we're looking at the first part of chapters 8, verse 6 to chapter 9, which is the, the start of the seven trumpets section of the book. And the trumpets are fabulous, aren't they? Alistair, welcome back to the show. Always a delight to be with you. Oh, so always a delight to have you as a guest. Now, how do the seven trumpets relate back to the seven seals? Well, we're prepared for the seals at the end of the sequence of, or the trumpets at the end of the sequence of the seals. Um, at the opening of the seventh seal, we have seven trumpets given to the seven angels and the presentation of the prayers of the saints. And at that point, we are set up for the blowing of these trumpets, which will follow a very similar sequence to that of the opening of the seals. So we saw in the case of the seals that there's a sort of four plus three or four plus two plus one pattern that's followed. And often in scripture, we can see the ways that numbers can be broken down into component parts. Um, here we have, for instance, something that might be akin to a sabbatical sequence with seven, and there is a way in which the seventh in the sequence is set apart, and the first four in the sequence have a very clear, distinct character. In this sequence, it's set off by the appearance of the eagle. In the former sequence, it's the horses that go out. And so in both cases, there is that same breakdown of the sequence, and many of the same similar sorts of events take place. Um, in what ways are the trumpets an intensification of the seals? Well, the scale of the judgment is greater. As we go through the trumpets, we can see that there are similar things happening as within the seals, but the scale of the judgment is amplified. And some have suggested that when we're reading through Revelation, that we see it as a sort of series of climactic spirals, where it's almost as if we're following a spiral staircase and ascending. And at any point, we're over some point that we've been previously, but we're at a higher level. And so the similarities between these sequences should be noticed, but also we should see some escalation um, taking place. So we're going up, but we're also covering the same sort of ground. Yeah. Now, how do chapters 8 to 11 fit into the whole book of Revelation? Well, it's good to set back more generally and get a sense of the larger themes. First of all, we've seen several sevens already. We've seen the seven churches, we've seen the seven lampstands, we've seen the seven stars, we've seen the seven angels of the churches in the opening chapters. And then going through, we've had the seven seals, now we have the seven trumpets, and then that will lead to the seven bowls. This is all suggesting that there is some sabbatical or jubilee theme playing out in the book. And also we can see that this is working up to a climactic judgment. We're going through these spirals and we're awaiting this great climactic judgment that has already been hinted at at several points. And in the final of each of these sequences, we have something that's anticipating that. That sequence is also one where we um, are expecting to have the fulfillment of God's judgment. It's at the heart of this is a series of actions that represent the fulfillment of God's purpose. So the seven seals are opening up the book. And then once the book is opened, we can have the blowing of the seven trumpets. And so it's all a single movement, but there are 
these various sequences within it leading up to the final great judgment. Now, of course, Seven Trumpets makes us think about things that we've read earlier in scripture. And this is very closely related to the overarching themes of the book, which concern the judgment upon a city, the deliverance of the land, the people of God. And it calls our minds back to the story of Joshua and the defeat of Jericho with, again, seven circuits. And then that's followed on the seventh day with the blowing of seven trumpets by seven um, priests, like seven angels here. And as a result, the walls of the city fall down. There's the symbolic judgment on this great city that represents the whole promised land. It's delivered into the hands of the people of God. And something very similar is happening here. We also have the unfaithful woman later on, which corresponds to the deliverance of Rahab, for instance, from the city of Jericho. Okay, well, you dealt with all my questions about the, the theology of trumpets. Well done. <laughs> Uh, seven, seven trumpets. Well, gosh, the number seven. You know what? The, the next question I'm going to ask, is there a connection back to the seven days of creation? I think we can see some loose connection with the days of creation. So we begin with things thrown down to earth, connected perhaps with the fire of the light. If we think about lights, we often have artificial lighting, but light for most people in the ancient world was primarily seen as fire. And here we have fire thrown down to earth on the first day. The second day, as it were, is the pollution of the waters of the sea. And then we can see on the third day, the rivers, the land waters um, polluted. And again, we have the land and the sea divided on the third day. The star cast down to earth might seem to suggest that this fits with the um, fourth day. So these connections are should be held fairly lightly. The third of the sun that struck on the fourth day, however, is a very clear connection with the fourth day. And so the moon and the stars, that's all fourth day themes connected with the creation of the sun, moon and stars on the first day of the fourth day of creation, the fourth, first day of the second sequence. Then in the woes, we have... Similar things, I think, playing out that you can see maybe in the the way that the bottomless pit leading to the swarm that is connected with the swarms created on the fifth day. Um, we can think about the sixth day. Maybe there are connections to be drawn there with the angels and mankind and the land beasts and the horses, perhaps. But yeah, those are all possibilities. One more question before we come on to the specifics of the uh, the trumpets. Alistair, I've got a quote from Peter Lightheart. He writes, when we enter the trumpet section, we are in the realm of the red horse. Now, what's the significance of the fact that we're in the realm of the red horse? So we have the um, sequence early on with the um, horses that are sent out. Later on, we'll see a victor on a white horse riding. So maybe we should see these as overarching motifs from introduced in the period of the seals that occur throughout the book. We'll later on have the bowls and then maybe Lightheart is suggesting that sort of sequence playing out in the book more generally. Mm. Okay, uh, the trumpets. The first trumpet 
I always want to refer to these trumpets as sort of celestial Louis Armstrongs, but however, <laughs> um, let's not go there. <laughs> How was the first trumpet concerned with the land? So the first trumpet is um, a judgment upon the earth. Um, there's something thrown down from heaven to earth, leading to the burning up of a third of the earth, the trees, and the judgment upon all of the grass. So these are things that are very much connected with the third day, even though it is suggested first day in the sequence. These are things connected with the earth and the land. Um, and when we're thinking about the land and the heavens and the seas within these prophecies, it's important to have a sense of the symbolic import of those different realms within scripture. So the land represents the promised land. It represents the people of Israel um, chiefly. If we go out to the sea, that represents the Gentiles. The heavens and things coming from the sky, those are related to the realm of the higher heavens. So not just the celestial bodies, comets and meteors and things like that, or not just the sun, moon and stars that we see, but heavenly entities. Likewise, if we're thinking about ships in the sea, we might think about the diaspora, or we might think about things such as the congregations of various synagogues and those sorts of forces. Sea beasts as well would represent Gentile powers. Yeah, uh, I'm reminded very much of the plagues in Egypt. Uh, is, is there a connection back to the book of Exodus here? I think as we go through these, we'll see several connections with the um, plagues of Exodus, not least in the locust plague that we have later on. But here the connection would be to the um, seventh plague, the plague of hail and fire, where it seems that fire is present within the hail, at least in certain readings in Exodus um, 9, 22 to 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as has never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. So we've got the hail, we've got the fire, and we've also got the striking of the trees of the field, the plants and the vegetation more generally. So this is very clearly some sort of analogy with the um, seventh play. What's the significance of the blood? The blood would draw our mind back, I think, to the um, earlier reference to the blood of the, the martyrs and the sacrifice of uh, and the, their martyrdom and their blood being brought upon the people in judgment in Christ's woes in Matthew chapter 23. He talks about all the blood from right from Abel to the the blood of righteous Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, being brought upon um, that, that generation. And so I think this is the background that we should bear in mind. Later on, there will be more blood poured out in judgment. There are a lot of references to the book of Ezekiel. and In fact, we see John acting much like Ezekiel does in Ezekiel. But how do the one-third fractions with the first trumpet connect us back to Ezekiel? Yes, in Ezekiel 5, we have a symbolic prophetic act that Ezekiel performs. Um, he's called to 
pass over a barber's razor over his head and take the hair, divide it up. A third is burned by fire in the middle of the city. Um, and a third is struck with the sword around the city and a third is scattered to the wind. And so this is a, a sort of judgment upon the whole of the people and a stripping of their glory in stripping them of their hair. You can also think of the ways that a captive might be um, shaved completely as a mark of their humiliation. Later on, that's described in a way that unpacks the symbolism that a third would die of pestilence and famine, um, and then a third would be consumed by the sword, and then a third would be scattered to exile. Yeah, does it connect with the famine in Jerusalem mentioned in the book of Acts? Perhaps. Um, we see the famine mentioned at the end in Acts 11, and the one prophesied by Agabus. Um, it seems that these famines played important roles within the an important part within the story of the early church. Um, after that famine, the story largely shifts to the larger world. It's not so focused on Jerusalem after that point. After chapter 12, when Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem and then return at the end of that, chapter 12 is a sort of turning point. And uh, the second trumpet connects us with the sea. Now, presumably, that means Gentiles. Yes, or at least the realm of the Gentiles. We might think about the realm of the Gentiles as also a realm in which a great many Jews and Christians are present. And so it's their world, their realm or world, even though they're not the primary inhabitants. Most of the Jews, uh, more of the Jews lived outside the land than in it, which is worth remembering when we consider the dynamics of the judgment upon the land relative to the judgment of the diaspora population and the wider realm of the sea. What's the significance of the burning mountain there? And double barrel question, never asked them, they told me, but I'm going to, what are the ships that are corrupted or destroyed? We've got a lot of sea imagery. Yes, um, the sea imagery here suggests that we're referring to the land, the realm of the Gentiles. What are ships within this land, uh, this realm? Maybe we should think of them as parts of the land that are brought out to the sea. So maybe these are synagogue communities or the realm of people operating within that realm who are God-fearers as well. They might be the living creatures in the sea. And so we have the God-fearers and then the third of the ships, those will be synagogue communities. The mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea, we might speculate, is that the temple mountain? Is it connected with Sinai? Um, Or is it something that... Um, follows from the burning land of the first trumpet, or is it the church? One way or another, it's not entirely clear, but the water is polluted. It becomes like blood. We might think then of the first plague, the way that the blood of the waters of the Nile makes it undrinkable. It's a curse upon Egypt, but it's also a bringing to light of their sin. The infants that were cast into the sea, their death is brought to light through the waters turning to blood. And so here we have the blood of the sea, uh, or the, the waters of the sea turning to blood, which maybe suggests the polluting blood of the martyrs is also spreading out to the wider Gentile realm. Mm. We might also, in this context, 
consider the way that Paul's apostolic mission and the mission of the early church has a shadow mission following it, a mission of the Jews that is persecuting and seeking to oppose the gospel at every step. They're trying to catch up and keep ahead of the ministry of the uh, apostles and their band as they go out. They always find the Jews just one step or so behind them and always about to instigate persecution against them. So the water is maybe spreading out and the blood is spreading out into the sea here. Mm, this is all drawing on Old Testament imagery, isn't it? Uh, third trumpet, what's the significance of the falling ruler or star in the third trumpet? Well, I think you give something of a clue to that in the idea of the falling ruler. Elsewhere in scripture, we have sun, moon and stars connected with ruling bodies in the heavens. Uh, we might think about the description in Isaiah 14 of the day star, the sun of the dawn that falls and the one who formerly ruled over and suppressed the nations, now being humiliated and brought down to Sheol. Maybe there's something similar here. There's a sort of falling from heaven that we'll later see in reference to the dragon that's cast down from heaven in chapter 12. And so this seems to be some angelic figure or demonic figure that is cast down from a ruling position and comes to earth in a way that is bringing mayhem in his wake, but he's also lost authority, um, it seems, as he's cast down from heaven. Now, how is the fourth trumpet, it would better do the fourth trumpet, how is the fourth trumpet concerned with the heavenly rulers, the sun, moon and stars? Yes, uh, it's concerned with the sun, moon and stars quite clearly with the third of them, of each of these being struck. And sun, moon and stars, as we've noted, are associated with ruling powers, and the powers that uphold the larger cosmic or um, political order. So if we read in the prophets about the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, or we might read about the heavens being rolled up like a scroll, those are political powers, whether those that are operative within the land or those of some pagan city or nation or empire that are being um, judged. And so this is some sort of judgment upon ruling authorities. We might think back to the description of something like Isaiah 13, 10. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Likewise, in Christ's teaching in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, we have similar descriptions. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give it light give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken so these are powers that maybe they're operative within the land maybe they're operative more generally within the world we might think of priests kings and other rulers um herod is struck down by the lord in acts 12 he might be an instance of this these are lights going out as the lord is judging specific kings and rulers and darkening the land and giving it over to forces of disorder. So the trumpets are very much connected with the pronouncement of the gospel and the progress of the gospel in the early church. Yeah, Fifth trumpet, Alistair, how does the fifth trumpet at the start of chapter 9 intensify the judgments of the previous four trumpets? We should probably begin there with the description of the eagle that precedes the fifth trumpet. The eagle pronounces this in a way that sets off the first four trumpets from the sec the three that follow uh, again drawing our minds back to the division of the the seals in the preceding chapter 
The chapter ends with the eagle's proclamation of coming woes in the trumpet blasts. The eagle is the fourth of the living creatures that we encounter. And also this might connect us, uh, connect the preceding trumpets with the lion and the ox and the man. So in that respect, it's already been set apart from what's preceded. And then we can go into the fifth trumpet that follows after it and works from the that announcement that we're, now we're moving into the realm of woes. This isn't just a continuation of the um, judgments that we've had in the first four. This is a new phase within that phase. And so the opening, now that the book has been opened, the seven trumpets have been blown, blown, the first four bring curses upon various realms, and then the woes follow. And all of this is, it seems to me, a symbolic presentation of events that we see within the first century. The spirits descended upon the church at Pentecost. The message of the gospel is spreading out. It arouses opposition, causes division within the land of Israel and the wider, wider empire. It leads to the martyrdom of Christians, leads to judgments upon the land and its rulers, judgments upon the diaspora and the wider empire. And then at this point, having followed the initial for horsemen judgments announced by living creatures, we have the trumpets, the trumpets that follow lead to the woes. And the fifth woe is another, another power falling from heaven, another sort of angelic power or ruler that brings judgment with him. And in this case, it's another judgment that might make us think of the plagues of Egypt. It's wormwood, the water, uh, the one who makes the waters bitter. Um, again, we might think there's something of that, about that bitterness that's preceded by the um, waters that are struck and turned to blood. Again, we might think about the fallen um, body from the fallen star. Uh, we've had that earlier as well. So this is continuing this sort of pattern. Now we've got three different types of creatures in this in this trumpet. Uh, we've got locusts, we have scorpions, and a strange creature that Peter Light, I, th I think, called, and I don't know how to pronounce this, a hippo lion, or maybe he calls it a, a Napoleon. I'm not quite sure, but <laughs> the hippo lions. Now, what are the what are the locusts? Who are what are the locusts? Who are what are the scorpions? And who are what are the hippo lions? Yes, it might be worth taking a bit of time over each of these. So the fifth trumpet releases, it seems to me, demons to ravage the land. If we go back to the story of First Samuel, when Saul um, rejects the Lord and the spirit leaves Saul and comes upon David, he's afflicted with evil spirits. And I think you see something similar happening. Christ, as he comes to Israel, everywhere he goes, particularly when he's going through the synagogues, he encounters demons and he's engaged in the ministry of exorcism apart from anything else. And so the land is being afflicted by these demonic forces that gain power over it and these spirits that have originally been cast out by christ are now coming back and redoubled and in a more severe force and so there's a an inverted pentecost perhaps that is happening here perhaps that's the best way to think about it it draws our attention back to of course the sixth plague where there's the kiln and the smoke of the kiln leading to the breaking out of sores 
and then also the eighth plague with the locusts. And so again, we've had the elements of an earlier plague in an earlier part of the judgment. We've had the uh, waters turning to blood, and then we've had the hail mixed with fire, and now we have the soot from the kiln, the bottomless pit, and then we've also got the locust plague. Christ has the keys of death and Hades, and so it seems that the fallen star has been given some sort of power granted to maybe it's similar to the casting out of the demons of the garrison demoniac into the herd of pigs that's cast into the abyss and now the abyss is opened and the abyss sends forth its monsters in this inverted pentecost and so just as in the description of the cherubim the cherubim has a sort of living cloud we might think about the living creatures in Ezekiel and the description of their wings, like the sound of many waters, this great cloud of noise and life. And now we have these composite creatures, which are sort of fake cherubim, um, parody cherubim. They bring together lions and horses and human beings and eagle features as well. And what we have here are um, serpents, associated with scorpions associated with satan we have locust scorpions which are a sort of lower form and parody of these um, cherubim figures we also have a living cloud a cloud that's coming with its noise and its life um, to bring judgment um, in this context we might think about the way that satan is cast down from heaven through christ's ministry and serpents and scorpions are then brought in his wake the demons that the um, church are given power over but which will afflict the people as satan comes down he's going to cause mayhem upon the earth and so these demonic swarms which have characteristics that might recall the events of um, the description in joel the nation that's described as the locust army the powerful nation its teeth like lion's teeth and the fangs of the lioness and then the description of this sort of theophanic cloud but it's not a theophanic cloud it's a living cloud of of judgment with these locusts that will devour everything and leave nothing in their wake those it seemed to me are the lo locust scorpions they are a sort of demonic swarm that's going to destroy the land. It's a demonic Pentecost, the cloud that's going to devour. Uh, at last uh, question, I think we've got about five minutes left. The sixth trumpet. Now, what does the sixth trumpet depict? The sixth trumpet is, no, is not the bottomless pit. These are powers that are operative within the land, connected with the angels bound at the river Euphrates. These may be connected to the four corners of the world, um, the numbers also might draw our mind back to the description of the servants of the Lord in Daniel 7. The stream of fire issues out from the throne of the Lord and there's a thousand thousands and then a thousand times ten thousand standing before him. There's the court set up and here we have maybe something similar to the two witnesses that bring judgment in um, chapter 11. They have power in their words they can judge and um, bring um, punishment upon the people and plagues as they do not repent and heed the word and so the horse powers maybe we could also think back to the the angels might be connected with the four horses and also with the horses of Zechariah 
Mm. Uh, one more question, I think. How does Revelation 9 continue the astronomical themes that we've already seen in the book of Revelation? Well, perhaps there is. Uh, Austin Farah has suggested that there's some connection between the scorpion locusts and the signs of the zodiac. And then suggesting on this count, there's some association between the battle that's taking place on the earth and some uh, astronomical battle in the heavens. Lightheart explores this within his commentary on the book. Mm. Uh, Alistair Roberts, Dr. Alistair Roberts of the Theopolis Institute in the States. Thank you very much. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and to take care of things behind the scenes, although I suspect they may not be able to deal with hippo lions. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much, Alistair. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>